Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, respect for reasons, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Paul C. Taylor. Paul is Associate Professor of Philosophy and African American Studies, Head of the Department of African American Studies, and Associate Dean for Undergraduate Studies in the College of the Liberal Arts at the Pennsylvania State University. He is the author of multiple scholarly articles and several books, including most recently a book titled On Obama from 2015 and a more recent book titled Black is Beautiful, A Philosophy of Black Aesthetics, which appeared in 2016. Hi, Paul. Professor Talese, it's a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) It's great to talk to you, too. So um, following the election of Barack Obama the first time around, um, you'll remember there was a lot of talk. Uh, about uh, America having achieved a post-racial state of affairs. Um, But I suspect you will agree uh, that narrative, for whatever it was worth, uh, has now been, I think, pretty decisively derailed. The most recent presidential election seems to have involved a good deal of racially and ethnically intoned rhetoric, uh, rhetoric sometimes overt, sometimes not overt and sometimes in between that is overt in some ways and implicit in others. Uh, and perhaps the slogan make America great again, uh, is an example of the latter. Um, there are lots of other problems that are surrounding, uh, this, um, tendency in public discourse that seem very troubling. Um, but what do you think? What do you think about the state of, uh, our public discourse these days? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to confess that I'm, I'm, pretty profoundly saddened by the state of our public discourse. Uh, this will not surprise you. Uh, I mean, one thing to say is the sort of disclaimer, uh, is to offer the sort of disclaimer one often hears in contexts like this, that public discourse uh, exists in lots of different contexts and settings and has many different participants in different uh, places. And so it, it's useful to be clear about which bits of it one is concerned with. Uh, there are some places in which public discourse is thriving and encouraging in productive ways. One, depending on one's orientation, one might think uh, some of the town halls we've seen are like this. Uh, One might think the Twitter verses is like this. Uh, But by and large, uh, if one tries to think about something like U.S. national public discourse of the sort that one gets from uh, big media concerns in the nightly news or whatever it is, 
uh, it's it's hard not to be distressed. I think. And what do you think are the most um, uh, where there is cause for distress? What what do you have a, a diagnosis of? It's it's not simply I, well maybe it is. It's not simply the views being expressed, or is it? Well, the views don't help, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's it's the views. It's the peculiar orientation to the work of exchanging and offering views. And this is something I've learned to think about uh, under the tutelage of your own writing and other other, other of your colleagues like Jose Medina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the way the views we're hearing express an orientation to uh, a couple of generations of what one might have thought of as moral progress, right? And you signal this in your uh, appeal to the slogan to make America great again, right? There's a there's a uh, an orientation to time there that requires interrogation, right? What, well, if we're talking about again, then what's the first greatness that we're interested in? And depending on who you are, right, the America someone, some other person thinks is great might might not be great for you. And that possibility seems to have disappeared in lots of ways and lots of places from our public discourse, right? Uh, this relates to the to the question about post-racialism, right? So for many people, one of the one of the attractions of post-racial discourse was that it enabled us, it encouraged us to adopt a kind of amnesiac posture, right? To be post-racial is to uh, absolve oneself of the burden of thinking about the U.S.'s tortured racial history, right? We don't have to think about that stuff anymore. We solved it. We got an African-American president or a black president, depending on how you think of the former president's racial identification. And so the real appeal of that notion of post-racialism for some people uh, critics and advocates alike, depending on who you talk to, is that it freed us from some things that we preferred not to dwell on. And the idea of making America great again in, in the particular way we've been invited to recently shows us one fruit of that way of approaching our history, right? We can think of greatness in uh, a seamlessly triumphalist fashion instead of in the more complicated way that we probably should. Right. And, um, Again, I, I guess there is a, you know, in, in, in philosophers, we, 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 we're great at, at um, developing these new colloquial sounding uh, terms, but turning them into technical terms. So there's a dog whistle element to the slogan, isn't there? Um, Make America Great Again isn't, a, isn't merely a slogan that allows the audience members such as they are to fill in the, 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 the great features of whatever the past that's being referenced is. And um, so it, it, it allows you to put your own content in. But do you think that the slogan has a, a kind of um, a, a, a particular appeal or a, a sort of winking reference to uh, the time before uh, the country um, had um, made changes that to you and I both seemed like moral progress, but to, I suspect, many of our fellow citizens look like a wrong turn? Sure. Oh, sure. I think it does. But the, the thing, one thing that's interesting about this for me right now is that uh, the dog whistle doesn't function in the same way that it used to, right? It used to be the case that the dog whistle would do all the work, right? Right. And you didn't have to say anymore. Now the dog whistle is attended by explicit, many, in some cases, uh, invocations of the kinds of political commitments that the dog whistle was meant to mask or obscure, right, or stand in for. Right. 
you do the dog whistle, and then in the next breath, you say something about how all Mexicans are criminals or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And that's new and interesting. And to me, what, what's, what marks that as a repudiation of a certain kind of moral progress is not just that it turns its back on particular moral judgments about the worth of certain kinds of people, for example, but that it refuses, and this is the thing I say I, I'm grateful to have learned from your writing. Uh, I appreciate it that. <laughs> uh, it, refu it refuses a, a picture of what democratic life is like, right? Uh, democratic citizenship requires the cult, many people think, not all of us, requires the cultivation of certain kinds of virtues. And those are, some of those virtues have to do with engaging with our fellows in certain ways, right? And having a certain kind of humility about uh, the postures we adopt in public and a willingness to engage with others in a responsible fashion. And that's eroded considerably in all sorts of ways, right? Uh, and so that's an un underappreciated dimension of this very peculiar moment we find ourselves in for me, right? Um, in particular, uh, this resonates for me because of, of the place where I find myself, right? I'm, I'm doing uh, my, most of my work nowadays is in uh, the halls of administration in a, a great public university and the liberal arts college of a great public university. Uh, I'm sorry to say I'm no longer the head of African-American studies. I could not do this and be a dean. Uh, our our African-American studies, the leader of our African-American studies department is the great Cynthia Young. And so I recommend her writing on this, on these topics as well. Uh, but this question of how to engage with our fellows, how to cultivate democratic virtues, this is at the heart of the work of a liberal arts college, some of us think. And so I'm, I'm inclined to think about this in connection with those kinds of concern. Excellent. Um, is there, um, when you mentioned earlier the, uh, uh, the, the protests and um, some of what's been going on we've been seeing uh, in the, the town halls uh, with representatives. Um, uh, is, there, is there, so on the one hand, I think you were right to point out that uh, from the perspectives of some of us, um, uh, these things look like um, not only good developments, but actually um, democratic uh, activities. That is that this is what a democracy has to look like. Um, and maybe we should hope moving forward that democracies will look more like this, even in times when things aren't uh, quite so desperate as, the, as, as they've become. Um, but the response, particularly to the town halls, that these are paid um, uh, uh, agitators. Um, now, I'll confess, that kind of suggestion strikes me as um, sort of profoundly um, uh, uh, dangerous in a democracy that um, to, uh, uh, to react in certain um, excited ways uh, in a forum about uh, holding representatives accountable, um, that that itself is a, portrayed as... Um, an activity that is democratically suspicious and must be explained by some, uh, the intervention of some anti-democratic agents rather than uh, an expression of democracy itself. I, I confess, I see a lot of this, that the, the things I think are good democracy uh, are often being portrayed, um, nationally at least, as um, anti-democratic. Mm -hmm. Does that seem right to you too? <laughs> it 
does. Um, it does. But the the worry, I confess, the worry gets a little traction with me because of the degree to which our political practices have become detached from our from the ethos that's meant to inform our politics. Right. We think of ourselves as a democratic nation and or society or community. Some people wouldn't want to talk about it in nation terms. Right. But for many people, the way to cash out that claim is entirely in terms of formal political structures. And we often deprive ourselves of the resources to criticize the degree to which those formal structures deviate from or turn against, right? the democratic ethos they're meant to empower. Part of what I have in mind is the sort of thing a political theorist named Sheldon Wolin talks about when he distinguishes, insists on putting the demos at the center of democracy, right? The demos is the Greek word for the common people, right? Uh, For Emerson, for lots of figures who write in the democratic tradition and Western democratic traditions. That's what's central to democracy. It's that you create a state, and this is what scared lots of elites throughout Western history about what democracy is meant to be and do. Uh, To be a democracy is to attend to the needs and the judgments and to cultivate the virtues and so forth of the common folks instead of the elites, right? And sometimes, this is Sheldon Wolin's point, the forms that we create at a certain moment to uh, express the needs and attend to the needs of the demos suffer what Whitehead would have called a fatigue of reason, right? They, they no longer serve the purpose that they are meant to perform. This is something like the idea Jefferson had in mind when he said we need a revolution every so often, right, to renew our political institutions and sensibilities, right? So we have this politic that does what it does, and we have these democratic imperatives that are meant to find their way somehow in the terrain that the politics maps for us. And those things have gotten really separate to such a degree. It's not hard for me to imagine, right, that you could have astroturf groups doing the sort of thing that we've seen in these town halls. Because we, we know it can happen because we've seen it before, right? Now, there's an empirical question at the heart of this. It either is or is not the case that these are real voters who are registered in the district where they're having these town halls, right? And we can find out, and we will find out, we presume, when the elections happen, right? But I'm cynical enough. I have been, uh, I've been educated by... Uh, the cynicism of our politics sufficiently to accept that there are possibilities there that are unsafe. Right. Uh, But that isn't the only conclusion to draw. And there are more interesting thoughts to think about what happens in that space. Right. Um, What, uh, so now that you, um, you, you, you are involved in the administration of a uh, liberal arts college and a distinguished one, do you have any thoughts about the role of um, uh, a university or particularly maybe a, a liberal arts uh, college within a university uh, for democracy, especially under conditions such as uh, we now uh, are experiencing? I try to have these thoughts. I fear I will be inarticulate about this because I have been dismayed at the way uh, these thoughts are received uh, in certain. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> um, so I mean, here's how I think of the work of the liberal arts. I, I'm one of these people who thinks that uh, the liberal arts enterprise is the soul of the higher ed sector and enterprise. Right? Um, it is wonderful that we have schools to educate engineers and business folk. Right? Uh, but it is 
not inconsequential that in many of our higher ed institutions, we have some kind of common core curriculum or general education program or something that serves that role that's meant to uh, cultivate in people a sense and awareness of their shared traditions, their common ground, right, as inhabitants of something like a shared society, right, uh, an awareness of the best that has been thought and said, to use Matthew Arnold's language. There's, there are reasons we do that stuff. And those things have to do with, uh, I mean, you'll find this language in Emerson and Marx and all kinds of people, right, in producing citizens, right, well-rounded moral persons who can function responsibly as citizens, right, and not simply as workers and not simply as engineers. It's great to have engineers. We must have them, but they must also be moral persons and they must know how to do that. And they must know that there are resources to inform them as they do that. I think that's what liberal arts institutions are for. And I think also that liberal arts colleges ought to take seriously the notion of what a college is. And a college is, and this is buried in the etymology of the word, a college is a community of a certain kind. It is an intellectual community, yes, but it is also a community. And communities do more than attend to the cognitive development of their participants, right? To be a community is to have people belong in certain ways and to affirm their belonging and to cultivate their sense of themselves as members of this shared enterprise. That's what colleges are for. And a college and a democracy does all of that, I think, in the context of this work of cultivating democratic virtues. And then, right, the enterprise I just described finds itself in a place in which people are putting flyers up on the walls, right, without permission or provocation saying, uh, this is for Americans, right? Our res American resources should be for American students. All you other people go home, right? Uh, or more hateful or worrisome things than that, right? Uh, variations on the Make America Great theme, but with the racial undertones of that theme explicitly laid out, right? Or swastikas painted on place, right? So we see these things entering this space that's meant to be a haven for the free exchange of ideas and so forth. And more often than I would like, I have found that our higher ed institutions seem not to have or want to use the resources at their disposal to engage responsibly with this moment. Right. Uh, that is distressing to me, but uh, maybe that just means maybe that just marks out the scope of the work. Maybe this is just what the work feels like. We have to make these institutions do this work and not expect them to do it sort of automatically. So. Right. And is there a worry um, that uh, the picture that you, you began with uh, of the, 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 the nature and role and objectives of uh, liberal arts education for a democrat in a democratic society, um, which, uh, as you know, I'm fully on board with. Uh, is there worry though um, that those ideals and values and norms and commitments um, can be co-opted in particular ways? So I'm thinking uh, especially about um, uh, this the, the guy uh, with the very long Greek last name I'm not going to be able to pronounce correctly, um, Milo, uh, mm -hmm. who um, uh, when in Berkeley when people were um, objecting uh, to his invitation to campus, there was a pushback um, that seemed to help itself to some of those very ideals, right? The free exchange of ideas, the uh, university being an open space for uh, even – you know, radically um, 
uh, right-wing voices, um, the worries that uh, we hear in less uh, urgent um, circumstances that uh, under the guise of um, the marketplace of ideas or the free exchange of ideas or uh, intellectual community, um, universities and colleges are in fact uh, these terribly biased um, uh, centers for um, progressives to indoctrinate young minds. Um, is there a worry about that? Well, there are many worries, I imagine. But <laughs> say, say a little bit more about precisely the, well, the thing. Well, mm-hmm. that the, the, the story that we tell about mm-hmm. uh, the role of the liberal arts institution in a democracy, it's, 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 it's very easy to tell that story. It's not always very easy to, to, to articulate it in, 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 in the very um, precise and attractive way you, you did a moment ago. But um, I take it that uh, this portrayal of the role of the liberal arts uh, uh, in a democratic society is something that it would be um, hard to find much dissent about among liberal arts uh, uh, professors. Um, but that portrayal, I think, has a vulnerability to it that um, because uh, it sounds so right on to us, uh, it also is easily co-optable for quite different sorts of purposes. Like um, uh, I have a colleague uh, who uh, wrote a book many years ago about uh, new voices of white nationalism in the United States. Her name is Carol Swain. And um, one of the things that she uh, uh, thematizes in that book um, is uh, the the predominance of the talk or or the prevalence of the talk of um, diversity in white nationalist literature. Mm -hmm. And it looks as if there's a, you know, there's a a sort of conceptual um, uh, uh, battle being fought that... um, uh, it's not simply there are liberal, democratic, progressive ideals, and then there are ideals that deny those liberal, democratic, progressive ideals, and they're the people on the other side or people uh, uh, who are um, alt-right or people who are radically conservative, but that um, both of these discourses seem to employ a lot of the same um, words, not the same concepts, but the same words, mm-hmm. and articulating um, – the uh, the open mindedness and the um, articulating even the sort of run of run of I was just going to say run of the mill million ideas <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> articulating those ideas in a way that isn't susceptible to um, co optation and the charge that it's just um, uh, you know liberal progressive professors patting themselves on the back for being inclusive when really what they mean is the silencing of the radical opposition. Um, I see like a problem. I see a problem that I haven't been able to put my, put my own mind around, unfortunately, but it looks like there are concepts that are easily repurposable or that can be easily repurposed. Um, Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's surely right. And we've already seen that at work in certain ways. What we're seeing now is the fruit of, 30 or 40 years of that, right? Um, you know, the King Day holiday is the fruit of that in a certain way, right? The very peculiar way certain Republican conservatives, conservative Republicans deal with 
the the legacy of Rosa Parks every year, right? Uh, facing the way, not every year, but when they bother to think about it, uh, facing the, the her lifelong activism and characterizing her in very different ways, very peculiar ways. So, so co-optation is uh, a standing danger, uh, which is why it's important that the kind of liberal democratic, liberal in the philosophical sense, right. not in a sort of narrow political sense, uh, commitment to the free exchange of ideas and that sort of thing, that a liberal democratic sensibility be, be wedded to a rigorous engagement with an interrogation of our historical context, right? So it's not just an abstract flattening out of difference, right? And appeal for bland equivalence, right? Mm -hmm. So I have my opinion and you have your opinion. We both have a right to our opinion and we should all exchange our views and that's right. Some opinions are better than others, right? That's why we make arguments, right? That's why we have people who can tell us the stories about how we got where we are, Right. And part of the burden of institutions of higher education and other kinds of institutions, not just us. Right. Is to, again, I'm, I'm sorry to use this language so much, but cultivate the kinds of virtues. Right. Citizenly virtues. Right. Uh, that encourage people to attend to that dimension of what they're about. Right. Here's an example. Right. So. When we started using phrases like Black Lives Matter. One of the immediate responses to that was, well, all lives matter. So why are you focusing on this thing? Right. To which. Right. For some folks, lots of folks, the stunningly obvious response was, yes, we know all lives matter, but some of y'all don't know this. And so we have to remind you about the ones that don't. Right. So think about the structure of that engagement. Right. You turn a particular claim about how to pursue justice in a particular context. Right. An historically freighted context. Right. You turn that into a bland, right, open ended, abstract claim about the worth of human life. Right. The and, and, a, and a claim that would be undeniable. <laughs> I mean, and that's, a claim that's undeniable. Yeah, that's right. right. It's vacuous. So, it's trivially true. I mean, right. not that it's a and trivial so, truth, but it's something that nobody would contest. Exactly. Right. And if we race to the trivial truth, we obscure the particular conditions that in this historical moment make it important to make the particularistic claim about what justice requires at this moment in this kind of place. Now, why is that relevant to the question you asked me? Well, because the the kind of engagement with the best that's been thought and said in the democratic and liberal traditions, right, is for me not a move to that abstract fetishization of open engagement. Right. And edification and the exchange of read. It's not that it's not just that it's that in a particular context. Right. In which we are reminded that evidence matters. Right. That there are facts about things. Right. Uh, and those facts, that evidence, the weight of our shared histories. Right. That anchors the debate in ways that make it clear not immediately or obviously clear, but clear after the kind of robust interrogation and engagement that we have in intellectual spaces, right, at their best, right, to make it clear that some opinions are better than others. And so the burden of creating and sustaining and protecting the spaces in which we can engage each other is not the burden of creating an opportunity for every opinion to be heard, period, right? It's for every opinion to be heard, right? And this is the good million point, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can then sort through them, Right. And, and figure out which ones we really ought to endorse. Right. After some reflective engagement. Right. 
Right, right. Excellent. Um, so uh, we're, we're, you've been very generous with your time. So uh, and we're, we're, I wanted to, to make sure that we, we got a chance to, um, or I got a chance to ask you. So um, uh, it seems right uh, that um, democratic citizenship is, uh, involves the cult cultivation of certain kinds of virtues, particularly, uh, but not exclusively, virtues that have to do with um, intellectual engagement uh, with uh, one's fellow citizens and maybe uh, intellectual engagement just with other other people uh, and other ideas. Um, it seems that uh, we, uh, we're operating under conditions uh, socially and otherwise, and maybe some of the, the social media uh, platforms don't always help uh, with the cultivation of virtue because they're so aimed at um, prompting very quick and uh, uh, rewarding very extreme uh, uh, reactions. Um, do you have any sense of uh, what uh, what what kind of advice would you give uh, to citizens who might um, want to uh, try to think about how to better cultivate within themselves and the people around them the kinds of virtues that you think are so crucial? Oh, good heavens! You want me to give advice? <laughs> um, I don't think philosophers are asked advice often enough. I, I to be oh. honest with you. <laughs> Well, I think if we were asked more often, we would quickly disqualify ourselves but, uh, <laughs> as responsible respondents. But, um, well, I mean, I can, I can, I hesitate to call it advice. I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of things from the perspective that I've been encouraged to develop in the, in the work that I do in and around critical race theory. Right? Perfect. Yeah, that would be. Cool. Um, I mean, one thing that's essential and that emerges clearly from the best work in critical race theory is that uh, social life is dynamic. John Dewey once wrote that, that uh, society is one word but many things, right? And those things change over time. Social life is dynamic and the forms and the structures that we're used to change radically, change faster than they ever have before. And we can see this very clearly when it comes to race. So if you think about race, what people used to call race relations. Some of us refuse that way of thinking about it for reasons I won't bore you with. But if you think about racial politics in the U.S. Uh, by appeal to old models where you have, you know, what some of us call the black-white binary, right, then it's clear you're going to miss a whole lot of stuff that's going on, especially now, right, with the way certain characters in our political discourse are racialized, right? The terrorist is a racialized figure. That's not about the black-white binary, right? Mm -hmm. The illegal immigrant, the illegal alien, we used to say, is a character who's racialized. That's not about the black-white binary. That's about some other things. And so we have to be attentive to the ways in which our social environments change and the ways in which those changes require changes in our mode of engagement, right, and response. And this is perhaps nowhere more clear than in our new president's administration, right? We have high profile African-American figures around him, not a lot of them, but a, a few, in light of which it's very difficult to think simply about right, white privilege versus some anti-black stuff. That stuff is there too, and it gets mobilized in very complicated ways, in some less complicated ways. But something else is happening, right, in virtue of which race is about, you know, the reproduction, production and reproduction of certain kinds of vulnerability to the operations of the state, right? Think about ICE, right, rounding people up and so sure. forth. This is a complicated moment. And we can't think about it by appeal to old scripts. And so maybe that's the advice. Be open 
to the novelty and uh, attend to uh, what the novelty requires of us. Well, that actually sounds to me like pretty good advice. <laughs> so, <laughs> Paul, you've been uh, uh, very generous with your time, and I, I really appreciate having the opportunity uh, and you providing me the opportunity to talk to you about some of these issues. Um, and thank you, listeners, uh, for uh, checking out the Why We Argue podcast, which is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and Facebook at, at Public Humility. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.